Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. When I asked international best-selling thriller author Jason Casper to come on the show, I didn't know a lot about him. But there's definitely a growing trail of evidence to suggest that he's doing something right. With five books out in his first series, American Mercenary, he's already garnered over 5,000 reviews on Goodreads and has a loyal base of engaged fans. Jason Casper, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller podcast. Hey, Ethan, thanks for having me. Hey, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, you come highly recommended from Brian Christopher Shea, who was another guest of the podcast and a lot of fun to talk to. And Yeah, it's uh, big shoes to fill. He's a tough act to follow. Ah, it's a lot of fun. I'm sure you'll be a lot of fun, too. And for the audience, um, you want to tell, what do you want to let people know about yourself? Uh, I'm a independent author writing the thriller and action thriller space. I've just got one series so far, the American Mercenary series with five books out, six on the way. Uh, and I'll be launching the Spider Heist Thrillers, which is a uh, heist thriller series. Uh, it'll be first book, the Spider Heist, will be coming up next month. And then we'll continue it from there. Cool. And I noticed you say we'll, we'll continue from there. Or... Is it a solo effort, or are you collaborating at all? Or you... no, it is a it's a solo effort. But uh, I've, I'm pretty fortunate to have a, a great cast of beta readers and uh, advanced review readers that uh, help me out with every launch. So I generally speak in <laughs> in the we. Hey, that's awesome. That's it's nice to feel like you have a team, um, for sure. And I I noticed that you're. American Mercenary series has really found a receptive audience and looks like you're connecting with a lot of readers. So that's got to be exciting. Yeah, I think anybody who's not uh, completely horrified and appalled by the first book, uh, they generally enjoy the rest of it. So you, you pretty much know what you're, what you're getting out of the gate, whether that's for you or not. Right. And so how did you get into writing? Seems like this is a pretty new thing for you. Um, I'm new to publishing. I'm not very new to writing. I, I kind of started as a closet writer back in 06, 07, um, mm -hmm. just for fun and kind of therapy in a way. And I ended up being a, a closet writer for about 10 years before I uh, transitioned to doing it full time. So, mm. And so I think fun and therapy are great reasons to get into it. Um, and in, in that span of time, in that 10 years, was it something that you regularly hacked away at or was it kind of fits and starts? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm a kind of a, a lifelong perpetrator of not asking for help ever. So I was like, <laughs> oh, I got this, I'll figure it out. And I, I kind of wrote, I was like three books deep in the series and I had some spinoff stuff all written before I pursued it. And when it actually came time to uh, make the leap into full-time writing and I was going to publish my first book, um, I went back and read it and I was like, this is unbearable. Like, this is so awful. And I didn't study any craft or anything. I was just like, I got this, we got finger pistols. Uh, and then I ended up pretty much erasing that whole thing and writing it from scratch. Um, mm. 
more or less in the in the final few months before publishing what ended up being the uh, what is now the current version of that book one greatest enemy um, and it's you know even then with 10 years of closet writing experience it's an extremely steep learning curve mm-hmm. and I, I started studying craft and story structure uh, you know way too late in my career I didn't even really look at that until I was kind of getting into book two and yeah. now I, I do it very heavily well that's I appreciate how honest you are about about that kind of early entry process into writing. Um, like I, I can completely relate to being a serial, I like the serial perpetrator of not asking for help. Um, but it, it sounds like you, you made a transformation there in your thinking. And I'm curious about what was going on in your head that helped you pivot. Oh, sure. So, um, you know, when you're writing for nobody but yourself, I think there's kind of that aspect of it's monopoly money, right? It's not real. You can like look at it and I think you need, or I certainly have needed um, uh, a certain, a very healthy amount of maybe unhealthy amount of ego to start writing because it's such a painful process. Uh, Mm. So to get started in that and to, you know, whether all the the terrible reviews and the critical responses and everything, you need to have a, a pretty good, I think, ego just to get the ball rolling. And then you have to sustain that because it never really gets easier. But um, starting out, I was like, oh, this is great. Maybe you're going to love it. It's not formulaic. This is so original. Um, you know, like I, I'm sure a lot of authors yeah. do. And then yeah. when I actually was looking down the barrel of publishing it, I think I just started to, um, you know, one, my skills had increased because I've been writing a lot um, leading up to that. And I think I was slightly more capable of objectively analyzing the work. Uh, and then also just, you know, when you're facing that cold, hard reality of like, you're about to publish something or you're within a few months, you have to send it to an editor and this is going to be the final, final draft. And then it's mm-hmm. going to be out before the world. And then you're going to be stamping your name on that. Like I never did pen names, never did like fake pictures or anything. Like everything is, I, I kind of wanted to burn the bridges behind me. Um, there was a certain sobering aspect to that. I think that that forced me to, kind of evaluate it a little more realistically and then, um, Mm. you know, prioritize my decisions in the rewriting process. Yeah. Well, that's, that's helpful. And I know from my own personal experience, I don't know how it went for you, but that, that first time submitting and going through an editor and getting that feedback is, is, is not an easy thing. No, not for, not for the faint of heart. It's certainly not. I, I definitely remember opening the document that came back and seeing the bloodbath and just having this you know, <laughs> moment of sheer terror of like, my God, like you just chosen to do this for the rest of your life. And, uh, but it's, and the funny thing is every manuscript I've submitted to my editors also come back like that. Um, and it's yeah. all for the, the far greater benefit of the finished work. Yeah. I, I think I, I learned a lot from from that process and it was painful and counter to being impatient or like i was i felt this internal struggle between wanting to get it out there and wanting to actually learn something from the feedback and apply it and those were kind of warring for me and did you kind of have a similar struggle with that yeah definitely um and i've told my editor when I submitted the first one and I say this to her every time I submit a manuscript to her and I've been fortunate to find my forever editor kind of out of the gate. Nice. Um, but yeah, every time I send it to her, um, or beta readers asking for feedback, I, I 
tend to clarify, like, there's no ego involved, like, just destroy it. Give me your harshest feedback. Don't worry about hurting my feelings. Mm. Uh, and I think that's something on, in any creative realm or any artistic realm you is a good, uh, a good attitude to have, whether you mean it in your heart or not. Uh, but just to clarify that, <laughs> you know, you're asking for honest expectations because I've had people send me stuff and ask for opinions and, and be like, Oh, just take it easy to be gentle. Cause uh, yeah, I'm really attached to this one. Like that's the, I think kind of the wrong mindset um, yeah. to be coming from in my experience so far, like the, the harsher the feedback I've gotten, the better the work has been yeah. um, as it stands in the finished product. Yeah. I, I imagine there's a trust process there. Like you have to build some trust both, both ways to get that kind of exchange. Sure. Um, yeah. And is, were there any, like, are there any parallels between taking creative feedback that, you know, can be a blow to the ego and say serving a military career? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, in both you benefit from objectively accepting feedback that people are giving you uh, as rough as it may be. And I think in both professions, you know, if you're doing them for your career, you, you don't really have the, the leeway to be super sensitive or super emotional when somebody tells you how to get better mm -hmm. um, or offers their advice, whether you take it or not. I think in both, you have to kind of accept the holistic range of opinions, both, you know, what you did good, what you did bad, how you can improve. And then there's also the element of, um, you know, there's a saying, I, I don't know who originally said it or I'd attribute it, but there's a saying that only the wise can be well counseled. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that plays into both. Like you can be an author and have a ton of beta readers and everything giving you feedback. You can be in the military and have a lot of, you know, superior subordinates and peers giving you feedback. Um, but if you, you know, lack the kind of um, wisdom and the, the self-knowledge to analyze that, see what you can take and apply, what doesn't apply to you, what was well-intentioned, but maybe inaccurate, um, and then face those cold, heart, uh, sobering truths mm -hmm. um, on the extreme end and get better for it. Yeah. And was that something for you that you just had, or was that something that you had to work for or come by and kind of as a result of life experience, that wisdom to take feedback. Um, and I, to clarify, I certainly wouldn't describe myself as a wise. No, do I think anybody would who knows me? Uh, well, I, I think uh, I've got a high pain tolerance, which mm. has been helpful, you know, both in the writing process and then accepting feedback. Um, but yeah, I think I've just kind of developed over time and I've gotten better about it as I've written because I've, I've always told people, like, I want your honestly, your harshest feedback, give it to me. Um, you know, and it hurts equally bad to read it every time. But the, the more I've, I've gone and gone through like hundreds of beta reader responses and everything, um, the more I realize that when somebody's like, hey, man, I love the work. It's perfect. Don't change a thing. Like, that's great. And I'm glad they liked it. Mm -hmm. But with a pre-production product, like that doesn't help me get it better at all. And that's a useful data point for me. Um, cause I evaluate the trends and what people think. Um, but the people who are like, even the people who are very toxic about it, um, yeah. often bring forth a few points. I'm like, that's an easy change. I can easily tweak that. And if that, you know, helps the 10% of people like you or however many it may be that read the book, like that's a good comment to make. And then there's other ones where it's just very visceral. Like, no, that's, you're not, you don't really understand what I'm trying to do here. And I'm going to stick with the way I see it. Um, mm. but there's definitely that element of, um, appraising and in the end you're the you're the ultimate decision maker for what makes it in and out of the out of the book 
Right. And I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that, right. Cause, um, that's a certain skill to develop on its own, like when to trust yourself and how to view feedback and absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a clear vision at this point of what you're trying to accomplish and, and have developed a filter for how to take feedback. Uh Yeah. You know, I would love to, to run a victory lap uh, and own that uh, compliment. The, you know, I definitely got into a comfort zone with my first series, you know, Mm -hmm. my book five, I had it dialed into where it was, you know, the book kind of fell out of my head. It came out super quick. Most everybody was like, that's, that's good. Tweak this, tweak this, but mostly leave it the same. Yeah. Um, And I think the, the risk there is uh, stagnation, right? So I could have just kept cranking books in that series um, and gotten like way too in my comfort zone. So Mm. with that point, I was like, I really need to break out, do something different. Um, and that's when I started writing the, this first book in the new series of spider high. So part of it, and it was murderous to write, but a lot of that was because I, I structured it that way. I wanted to push myself as far outside my comfort zone, um, Mm. as I could. Right. Cause I think for any creative type, right. Like stasis is death. Like if you are just churning the same product, um, not that you won't be commercially successful, but you know, I really want to like push myself creatively. Um, so just like anything else working out running, you know, if it's, if something's not hard anymore, you're not improving. So mm. I took on that and went outside. Everything I wrote previously was, a you know, a first person only, um, you know, male protagonist, very military, uh, action thriller themed. Mm-hmm. And then this one, I did female protagonists, multiple points of view, um, swapping back and forth between multiple characters, nothing related to the military. It's all exclusively like law enforcement and crime, like heist related. Um, and it, <laughs> that, that book put me in a, in a dark place. And even mm. as a, I'm a pretty staunch plotter, um, yeah. my best attempts were, were maybe 60, 70%, if that to what the finished product ended up being. It just constantly took different turns I didn't see coming and the new characters kept popping up. Um, so it was brutally, brutally hard to write. But now that I'm jumping back into my mainline series, now that, you know, the, the other one's an audiobook production, um, it's, I'm writing it a lot more clean. I'm exploring mm. a lot more areas. I'm definitely, I can feel uh, kind of a lot more uh, angles and subtleties and nuances to that work relative to any of the five books before it, uh, that I, I don't think I would have had any of that had I not, um, taken on something extremely, extremely challenging. Huh. But I, I think there's a, there's a lot there to that process that you just described. Um, because you were talking about leaving your comfort zone that, that, that need to creatively keep improving when that fifth book in your series was the audience reaction that I saw was off the charts. Like they, they were really into it and raving about it being your best work. And I imagine, you know, it's a hard decision to step away from it. Um, And for that, for, for that gratification, like, is there, how do you think about or weigh or balance like, money pressure of like, Hey, I've got something successful that people are vibing on versus taking a, taking a risk and trying something new. Yeah. You know, I think, I think fundamentally 
if your decisions are purely financial, like writing is probably not the field you want to be in, right? Like your odds of making a living in this profession are, um, I think slim. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing it recreationally. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and doing it part-time on the side. Uh, but I think if your goal is to make money, there's, there's a lot of fields where you have a very structured timeline, you know, mm-hmm. this many years in progressive positions, you've got 401ks, you've got pension plans, right? right. Uh, in writing, you don't have any of that. Um, and even if you're purely financially based, and I've met um, some very successful writers that kind of do, um, and this is, you know, this is to their credit, this is their style, they're not like betraying their, their muse or anything, like this is just how they operate. Right. Um, they tend to like write to the market and, you know, see what, what the hunger is for and then address that in their upcoming works. And some have done it to absolutely great success. Uh, but I think by and large for most people, um, the process of writing is, you know, so painful. It never really gets any easier that you mm-hmm. have to write something you love, right? You have to write something that is a compelling topic with characters you want to explore and themes you really want to dive into um, to get you through just that every day coming and smashing your head against the keyboard over and over for, you know, months and years on end. Right. So it sounds so, like, it sounds like there's a, a higher purpose to what you're doing in terms of this is, this is something deeply part of who you are and your your motivation and your intention for yourself is wrapped up in in writing these stories and exploring yeah absolutely i mean and i'm way over on that spectrum of writing to market versus writing for self i'm way over on the writing for self side um but but to your point about you know the financial risk of writing a new series i think you know, you could, you could argue that 10 different ways about this next one will be for a wider market. And I could talk to you for half an hour about why it's a wise market decision, right? Female protagonists, it's more generally, you know, it'll be more marketable, the overall thriller space. And the, and the truth is I have one, I have no idea, right? I can speculate and make logical leaps off that, but I don't know what the reception is going to be, right? Yeah, Spider yeah. Heist might, it might be widely loved and acclaimed, or it might have really terrible reception. It might alienate a lot of my existing readers who want to keep reading nothing but the military angle. So in the end, I think you have to, um, you know, you have to take the risk and you have to do what like you want to do as an artist, right? Because that's the thing. It's, um, you know, it's that notion of, you know, as an actor, like those guys don't have an easy time, uh, doing what they do, but like without them, it's a blank stage or a blank screen, right? Like you're an author for a reason, like you're an author because you have something to say, um, you know, readers want to, the right kind of readers for you, your right audience wants to read what you have to say. Yeah. I think you've got, um, we as writers and creators kind of have an obligation to exploring the, the truth as we see it, um, and presenting that to our audience. Yeah. I, I like that. And what, what do you feel like there's a central theme to what you've been writing and exploring in terms of like what your unique point of view is then your voice as a writer? Have you found that? Yeah. And it's kind of funny because it keeps changing. And if I look at how it's changed throughout, you know, for instance, my last, the five books in one series, um, it's definitely reflected my own changes. Right. So the first one is extremely dark and I was in a dark place and it's very exploring, you know, very, uh, very dark, very violent. Mm. Um, you know, and then as it goes on, there's kind of this acceptance of it 
and then later on there's some themes of like redemption like you know accepting what what is and not trying to be somebody else not trying to do it differently and then as it goes forth into the book i'm writing now it goes into the very redemptive angle where there are like family factors involved and uh Mm. you know doing things for other people and if i trace the timeline i didn't think about this too much till you said it if i trace the timeline of it it was like when i was you know in the military when i was Mm -hmm. getting out and going through all these transition troubles to becoming a father you know Mm. like watch my daughter grow older um so yeah i think uh if i had to as best as i can try to objectively analyze it from the outside i would say the they're all reflections of kind of like what occupies my mind and what I see as truth and reality, but that, you know, that changes over time as we age and go through different life experiences. So it sounds like, like maybe that wasn't intentional, but your series has this arc, um, emotional arc, and you're saying it's kind of a mirror for your own life. You've been subconsciously putting that into your series. And that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think with each one, I don't see any other way to write, right? I can only see it that way. Like, this is, that's what it is. And I write it. But like right now, if I go back and start opening pages of my first book, and I'm just like, my God, like, this is the darkest thing I've ever read in my life. Like, what, like, are you okay, man? You know, like, yeah, yeah. Um, because I have to reference the previous books, um, you know, in writing the next one, because the series, the first six books are very intertwined. And yeah, I'm constantly struck looking back at like, whoa, man, like, this is, you know, either too like emotionally dark or this is like you could have done this better doing xyz using fill in the blank Mm -hmm. kit in the writer's toolbox that i've acquired since yeah but yeah at the time it definitely seems like a one-way street and then looking back i see all these other options and ways it could have gone so i think each one kind of is a uh, a self-portrait of a snapshot yeah that's interesting and i'm curious how your readers interpret and view that it sounds like they're invested in the characters and in a way in a funny way they're they're kind of invested in your own emotional journey it sounds like yeah and i think it um probably every author has the same experience and that it, it kind of varies and that there are readers who come from similar backgrounds they have similar emotional states mm-hmm. and i'll get very candid like life story like my wife doesn't know this type stuff and communicate with readers on that level and then the vast majority is like hey it's a good story great action i loved it when's the next one yeah, um, and then everything in between to include the hate mail. But yeah, I think um, probably all of us have those, you know, readers where something really resonates because they're in that same place or they they know exactly what you're, you're talking about. Right. Um, and then I think for the majority, it's just good entertainment. Both I think are equally valuable. Not every work has to be a powerful, you know, tool of catharsis for every reader. Uh, yeah. I think in the end, like there's stories a very powerful thing for entertainment and for life and however the reader interprets it is up to them. Like they don't tell me how to write. I don't tell them how to interpret the work we, you know, and everybody gets along. Yeah. That sounds like a virtuous circle. And I, I know that for this first, that first series we talk about, you know, there's a safety in, in writing it. Right. And, and you used your best tools that you had available, but you've stretched yourself since then. And when you think about writing books now and maybe the sixth book you're writing in the series that you're coming back to, it sounds like the series is informed in large part by your real world experiences, whether it's in the army or as a ranger or as a green beret. Right. And I'm curious what parts of that 
you intentionally bring in and if there's anything you intentionally kind of omit omit or filter at this point for the audience in terms of making art so all of the events themselves in the book are completely fictional right there's no right. like hey this is an actual gunfight that happened and i'm putting it i get people asking that it's i make no it, nothing is nothing is real like they're complete uh complete works of fiction right i think the what i what I try to bring to the work in terms of uh, previous experience is just the authenticity angle of it. Right. I like um, writing realistic gunfights. Right. And it doesn't mean realistic as in this happened. It means realistic as in, you know, <laughs> magazines run out of bullets, bullets obey particular laws of ballistics. Mm -hmm. um, and I like kind of uh, circling around like the absurd chaos of, of gunfights and combat uh, where, you know, there's, there's often like absurdly meaningless occurrences mm. that, you know, the chances of it occurring are so low, but it catastrophic, it's a uh, catastrophic to the, you know, the lives of those involved. Um, I like the absurd chance element and I like kind of stepping away and this is just a personal creative preference. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just not my angle. Right. There's a lot of like the very patriotic, right? Like the good guys, versus the bad the good right. guys win um we wrap ourselves in american flag and sing the national anthem and go home there's the happy endings right right um, which you know is is uh it's great but what i like to do more and just this goes back to like what i'm just interested in exploring in my writing and exploring creatively is i like kind of the darker side like what's what's the aftermath like and then so the, the guys i write stories protagonists included are like dealing with the ptsd and the insomnia and the drinking issues and mm -hmm. then the emotional detachment and they only feel alive when they're in combat um and they meet like-minded people who pursue this not out of any you know and just going back to the mercenary theme like right they're they're in it for the combat right they're in it for the adrenaline and they're not serving like a grand nationalistic cause so in the books there is good and bad uh, but it is, they're all, they all exist in shades of gray. So the good, good guy is still a criminal. The good guy is still doing massively illegal things often on an international scale, but the reasons he's doing it and the players he's up against are far worse. Right. And so you're really humanizing everybody that's in the stories. It sounds like, and assigning this person of personal motive and getting into what is meaning maybe at a personal level. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is write the, um, you know, the world's greatest assassin reporting directly to the president who is, you know, extremely virtuous and every bullet finds its mark and, you know, he can cheat a flip and ninjits do his way through <laughs> the crowd of bad guys. Right? right. Right. Not that that's not a good and viable way to do things. Right. Like I'll, I love watching, you know, John Wick, James Bond, fill in the blank. It's just not really what I want to want to write myself. Right. Yeah, it's a, maybe a shade more Logan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which which I love. Uh, I love. I love those type of characters myself. I I can't help but gravitate toward that dark, gritty authenticity as far as personal motivation goes, even if I wrap it up with a little bit of humor. But yeah, personal preference. You know, yeah, whether or not to glorify the labels or to invite people to see consequence. I know that's something I like to explore. And 
So in 2016, when you, you kind of sounds like you started thinking about craft and profession, did you have some like key mentors or mentor moments where you kind of were able to get steered onto the right path? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the mentor didn't come along till later. What happened in, you know, late 2016, as I said, I was, you know, just threw this book out the window and then rewrote it kind of from scratch, same characters, same story events, but just at a certain point you're writing something completely different. Hmm. Um, I went into this, you know, kind of frenzied murder spasm of getting this thing ready for the editor and was working these incredibly long, long days and sleeping very little to make this deadline of trying to get it into the editor I had booked, um, who I still use today, fortunately. And I got the book across the finish line. I pushed it to the editor and I just looked back at like the previous, you know, month or two of my life. And I was like, you can never do that again. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, like emotionally, like just spiritually, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty insane. And I just Mm -hmm. remember thinking like, if you want to make a career out of this, right, it's gotta be your day job. You can't be doing this just crazy death sprint at all times. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so then I was like, how can I sustain this? Uh, and I think I had enough blitzkrieg ideas, um, to form one book, but you know, that doesn't necessarily extrapolate to a coherent series or even a next book in series. So that was kind of my moment of, uh, truth where I was like, you need to figure out what you're doing. And I started reading, um, craft books, trying to understand a little bit more of story structure. Um, and being able to, you know, recreate the process to the benefit of the overall series, to the benefit of every other book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, that has been, from the craft side, that has worked. Um, none of that is applied to the sales side of things, mm-hmm. right? Like your, your cover design, your marketing, your advertising. Um, and for that, I relied on and continue to rely on um, a few different other authors who are extremely generous with their you know, their time and their, in sharing their wisdom. Um, cause I came into this business extremely tone deaf for all of those things. And mm. still my mathematical, uh, faculties or lack thereof do not put me in any position to be like a real dangerous dude to contend with when it comes to like advertising. I don't, I'm just terrible with it. <laughs> really yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate rules of thumb and, you know, you got to find the right, the right people who are, maybe lined up with your own intentions who who you can emulate and learn from. And it sounds like you've been finding those people. That's Yeah. Not by choice. I would love to say I I came out swinging, you know, dropped this great debut book and it was off the races, but yeah, I, I had uh, two books out and I'd been a full-time writer for close to a year with, you know, just, terrible sales did no advertising did no marketing yeah um you know and it comes back to there's no i I think you could re-release pick any 19th century literary masterpiece re-release it on amazon as a new work and if you're not advertising with a genre appropriate cover like it's just gonna fall to the million book rank or sell you know a copy or two every week based on miraculous organic search and everything else is pay to play sadly right, right. that's part of the industry i'm not i'm still not too keen on i'd i'd love to stay in the creative side at all times and most of the time i feel like a uh, traditionally published author trapped in the body of an independent author because <laughs> i would love to not deal with any of that stuff right 
and but you do and so so maybe let's talk about that like do you have any tips for coping with that like how are you getting by and managing that have you found a balance um as far as emotional health goes yeah i'd say i do about 50 50 so my days uh, i generally get an hour of writing in hour hour and a half before my kid gets up mm-hmm. um and then i send my kid to school and i i generally get another three to four hours in uh, in the morning and the rest of the day is just the supporting activities and to be fair i've i've you know been lucky to meet a few like traditionally published published authors uh, that i respect a great deal and they in a lot of regards don't have it any easier you know the, the financial margins are smaller mm-hmm. and they have to put in the time for the book tours and you know are, are kind of uh they have to deal with what their their publicists lay on for them. So I don't mean to suggest that traditionally published authors in any way have it any easier than uh, independent authors. I think we're all eating different slices of the same the same pie in terms of market visibility. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there's definitely it's different trade offs, I suppose, right? Like you if you're a traditionally published author that means you get some guarantee right you get that that money you get marketing support to a certain type of market and yeah and then you still have to do the marketing stuff that's that's rough i do wish i I, i'm like i don't know about you but i love having a team and the hardest part about being self-employed and doing this independently is not feeling like there is a that support there. Like it takes my own energy to make a ball, get a ball rolling for every right. single thing. And that can be exhausting, right? Sure. And so how do you manage your energy then? How do you keep this sustainable? Um, I think I benefit a lot from, uh, connecting with readers, right. Be it email or I also have like a, like an author's Facebook group. It's like very candid, like, um, communications with people on, in both realms. But I think that reader connection is what, you know, helps you kind of get over the fill in the blank, right. The slew of one stars. There's days where you just, you know, you realize you've been like in a spreadsheet trying to figure out cost per click and keywords for ads and you just want to put your head down and cry and what gets you through that you know the visceral or like the, the piece of hate mail from somebody um i think what, what really helps keep me going other than just the inherent rewards and the creative aspect is just mm. hearing from the readers who um find that the work resonates with them and they enjoy it and like their enthusiasm and like their support and like you know, beginning the call, I, I refer to, I do this all the time. I refer to, I'm like, yeah, we'll have this coming out. And I get that question a lot. Like, Oh, do you have like a co-writer? Do you have a ghostwriter? Um, like I write everything myself, but I feel like the readers are very, very integral to that process. I mean, to the mm. point where now my Facebook, I'm constantly like, Hey, like, what do you guys think about these, the book coming out <laughs> next, the book I'm working on now. I posted a title poll. And as it turned out, they all hated all of my titles. And one of my <laughs> readers suggested the, uh, the title I'm going to go with. Right. And it just happened in the, in the comments, but I think, um, being able to connect with your fan base, right. Is hugely important. I think for them and you, right. Cause I don't, I don't know how many people have the experience of like, 
you know, you have your, your hero or the author you want to emulate, then you like, like reach out and you never hear back or you get some yeah. like, you know, assistant copying and pasting a response or here's a link to a blog post I wrote on it. Right. Through no fault of their own. Like some of the, a lot of people do not literally don't have the time um, to respond to anyone, much less everyone personally. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a lot. Yeah. But I think um, it's important to connect with your, uh, with your readers because the readers that form that support group, um, like that's the right reader. Mm. So I've got tons of visceral one stars and hate mail, like you name it. Right. Um, but none of them are from like, Oh wow, that's the person I really wanted to write for. You know, it just means the work not might not be right for them. Right. It might be out of their genre. It might just mm-hmm. not be their personal taste within the genre. And that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the readers really keep me grounded. That's, that's a really cool answer. Um, so how did you build that support system? Oh man, it, it took a long time. So before I did any of the advertising or marketing stuff, I had a mailing list of 150 people. And I think they were, you know, that's kind of like family and people are like friends that are just going to support me no matter what I do. Um, cause we go back a long ways. Hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I would just send out like, Oh, here's a new release email. I didn't really, um, I didn't do any of that continued connection. And, and, um, as I started advertising, trying to establish like, a professional platform, um, that's where I started. Like I email my reader list about once a month, even if I don't have a new release, just like, Hey, here's where this stands. You know, this book just came out on audio. This one is with the editor. Like this is what I'm looking at doing next. Like, let me know what you think. Um, and then down to like the level of the Facebook group where it's, you know, um, <laughs> I just, whatever, uh, whatever's going on in my head or in my life, I'm very open, like sharing. And then other people like chime in with like their experiences and everything. And it just kind of, kind of becomes a group forum, but it built very slowly. I think starting with the mailing list, cause every author has one or it's highly recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, and that grew like very slowly and continues to grow very slowly, but you find incredibly like loyal readers that way. Um, and then the Facebook group is a much smaller percentage, but they're, they're very vocal. They're very engaged. They want to be the ones that are voting on different options for the next book cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it becomes a, a gradual, a gradual thing over time. And a lot of it's proportional to what you're willing to share with them. Right. Mm. Like I used to be very like, I'll let you know when I have a new release, like I'm buttoned on the hatch. I'm like, I'm working or nothing I have to say is that interesting. Um, but you know, the people that are coming out to read your work, I think they want to know what's going on. They want to know the status of projects and how you feel about certain things, like whether a book, you know, came along very easy for you, whether you're struggling. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, over time it's turned into a pretty good, I think uh, two way dialogue. And now looking back, I've, I've got, um, you know, readers I've been communicating with for the better part of three years, like pretty regularly. Like I know their email address on the top of my head. I know their name, their nickname. I know their, you know, in some cases, various parts of their life story uh, that we've shared. And um, yeah. it becomes a very good uh, two-way conversation. That's super cool. And so how did you like bring them into that, the, that more hardcore social element? How did you bring them in? along to Facebook? Oh, I just, um, so one day it was actually an author friend of mine. I was like, Hey man, you start a Facebook group, right? Like good reader engagement, like talk to your, talk to your people. Um, so I did, and I think I just emailed out my list and, um, said like, Hey, I'm starting a Facebook group and I invited people I knew. Um, 
And it took a while to get going on a couple grounds, right? One for people to come in, two for you know me to figure out like what I was comfortable posting and what to do with my hands and social media because mm. it's not something that I'm like comfortable with or knowledgeable in. So the Facebook, there's no like savvy tactics or like regular post I'm just like whatever's not going on in my head, whatever like I need their feedback on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of uh, what I do for continued. Uh, that I would recommend in terms of just like the nuts and bolts business aspect um, on my onboarding sequence, right? So when somebody joins my email list, I have, um, you know, notes about, Hey, like I'm on, if you're on Facebook, feel free to join this group. Blah blah. blah. Um, I've got a few different uh, cues throughout my onboarding sequence, like remind people like, Hey, if you'd like to join this um, in the onboarding sequence of emails, mm-hmm. And then when I email my list, just a regular update, I've got uh, kind of an email footer where it's like, like you know, remember to whitelist um, so these emails don't go to spam in the future. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, the Facebook group is here. Like, do you have time to leave a review? Just kind of those notes that aren't super high priority where I really need to beg people to do it. But it's good to like keep sending reminders, maybe catch somebody in a good day when they have a few extra minutes or they want to check it right. out. Um, so those repeated reminders, I think, are valuable. That's a good tip. Um, yeah. And what did you mean as far as like not knowing what to do with your hands? Like, you know? Oh, well, I mean, that's a Will Ferrell throwback, but yeah, uh-huh. just in terms of like how to do social media, like what do people want to see? What is appropriate to put, um, into the point where <laughs> I'm normally, um, behind closed doors, I'm a very like heinously profane person. I uh-huh. love offensive humor uh-huh. and, uh, like to my core, I love these things. And, when I first started doing it, I had to have like my whole, my wife read everything I was going to post. Your sensitivity, Ritter. A not, uh, a not irregular occurrence just for her to be like, you can't say that <laughs> like to people in public, please stop. Um, <laughs> you know, and so my wife helped bump steer me a little bit cause she's, you know, like I think many, uh, many young women are very connected to like, yeah, all the different social media conduits. Yeah. So yeah. a little bit of bump steering in the beginning. And now I, I just kind of write whatever's on my mind within respectable parameters and, um, yeah, I haven't had any issues since. Uh, so <laughs> no issues since. So, so there was a little training period there and, and you did get a little help. I, I appreciate that. It, I think that's a real struggle for anybody in this day and age in, in terms of finding the right voice to use with the reader. Like, cause if you filter too much, they don't feel that connection to you and that that's problematic. Right. And yeah. And there is also that notion of, um, you know, you have to have that authentic voice and you have to like honestly represent like yourself and your product, I think. So you know, yeah. I told you my, my first book in series, um, my first book ever is like pretty polarizing. It's got a, uh, you know, the, you look at the review profile and there's yeah. a lot of five stars and there's a lot of one stars, right? Yeah. Not as much in the two and three, which I think is not a bad way to go, um, yeah. personally. Yeah. But what I, what I do like about this is by no means intentional. When I, like, when I go back and look at my first book, I'm like, my God, man, <laughs> this is pretty heavy, um, pretty edgy stuff, dude. Uh, but it has the advantage of like the people who go on to read that and they're like, Oh, I want to read the next one. Uh, one, they, they can and usually do just rip through the rest of the series. And then two, it's, I don't have people that are like barely limping past the first book and then leaving me 
one stars on like book two and three, right? Right. Because anybody who is offended by literally anything you can be offended by in terms of violence, profanity, uh, killing off like majorly empathetic characters, uh-huh. uh, those people are out in book one. Yeah. So that's that's but, good. Yeah. That's a good point. And I noticed like your reviews steadily tick up book by book and i'm sure part of that's craft and part yeah, of that part of I that's hope, the right reader is is there by book yeah by i book. hope they don't start ticking downward but uh yeah I've, I've taken my licks and if you ever want to feel uh better about yourself i think any author just uh go to my first book and peruse some of the one stars and you're <laughs> you going real quick oh yeah 100 percent. yeah and you know thinking about that and still connecting this thought to the how much you filter from yourself in interacting with your readers and your fans on Facebook, right? Like I, I imagine the more of you is in your books and the more you're filtering out the wrong reader that way, like the people who are coming to you are probably more receptive to what you have to say anyways. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. So I don't know how much, how much, how many of those deeply profane jokes <laughs> make it into your books. But interesting thoughts for filtering. Uh, yeah, I think I'll have to take some notes for myself to think about that. How how can I filter out the wrong readers in my books book ones more? Yeah, and I don't I don't mean to say this is like an intentionally uh, strategic decision. It's just something organic that I've kind of noticed that. Yeah. I don't have a lot of the wrong readers making it onto book two. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah, I guess that. But that's a good thing. So if you if you write a really clearly connected to your voice and who you are book, maybe, maybe that's just a natural byproduct. Yeah. That I we, think that we I can think, trust. I think from the, uh, from the marketing perspective, the smarter move is to write kind of a wider funnel for book one and get people emotionally involved and interested before you, uh, um, you know, really start tightening the funnel. But mm. that's, that's just detached logical reasoning. I think what you, what I would recommend everybody do and what I certainly do myself is air more on the side of like, what do you want to write? Write that. It comes down to everything like watches, cars, like people debate like brand heritage and, you know, economics and luxury. And like the bottom line is like, get what you like. Right. Like you'll never, you'll never go wrong. Yeah. And I've, I've heard so many times, like whether it's personal or, or interact or directed at other authors or writers of other things, like you can't say that you can't write that. And yet many of the most successful people, as far as having a career goes, are people who were very pointedly themselves. Sure. Yeah. And I'm far from uh, being able to weather any accusation of being a massive career success, but I will say like, I broke every rule. This is looking back with what I know now. Mm. I broke every possible rule with my first book, like created an empathetic cast of characters, killed all of them. Like just every possible thing you could break that could alienate readers. Um, I did. And there's still the right readers trickling in mm. um, and finding the series. And I would have been more readers, but I've been more successful writing a, 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 you know, a wider, more acceptable work. I don't know, maybe, but maybe it would have lost the authenticity. And I think at the end, it just comes down to like, right the truth for you at that time, like write the best book you're capable of at that moment. Like don't try to be somebody else or meet some marketing objective. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I, I think it's going to show, I think we've all had the experience of like reading a book where it just feels like the author's marking time. Right. It just yeah. feels like, 
yep, you, you see the tropes coming, you see the, the turns coming. Um, and not to say that if you write purely authentic, that your book is going to be like a wild breakout success. Sure. Um, but you will have, I think, done the right thing by your own creative faculties and by your readers. Great. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And so for people who are listening, how can they find you? Uh, my website, uh, jason-casper.com, has links to all my social media. Uh, my email is jason at jason-casper.com. Right, and that's with and a K, Casper with a K. That, that is with a K. Uh, yeah, people usually get that wrong. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find, pretty accessible. Cool. Sounds like you're pretty interactive on the social media and all that stuff. I'm trying to get better at it. Great. So it sounds like, you know, maybe people want to take some lessons, sign up for your mailing list and uh, check would, out your books. And <laughs> You're free to do so. I would look at, um, there are many authors who sell a lot better than I do. If you're looking for marketing <laughs> angles, I would go elsewhere first, but yes, yeah, any and all well, are welcome. You know, it's an interesting thing, Jason. Like, I, think, I feel like all of us in our own journey, feel like we're we're just beginning but all of us are so far ahead of other people who may be listening as well and writing and so uh, and there's a spectrum and i think we all have something to learn from each other regardless of where we are in the journey and i'm certainly planning to learn something from you and take some notes and 5000 reviews on goodreads can't be bad right you're doing all right and i congratulate you for that Oh, thank you. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Jason. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Great. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.